There is no other power where we can stand. None. None whatever. We stand in our own power. We have already fallen before we've begun. So we thank you for the power of Jesus Christ. And we pray that, Lord, your spirit would move through us and empower us in ways that we perhaps even had not known before. This is the power of Christ in us. We thank you and praise you through Christ our Lord. Amen. First, I'd like to say how much I appreciate your prayers. I have very carefully followed CDC guidelines, and today is the last day that I even need to uh, publicly uh, wear the mask. Uh, Those of you who have been on the COVID uh, journey uh, realize that, of course, it's different for each person, as is our uh, all of our uh, journeys, but the uh, the first uh, few days were very difficult. While I have held many uh, positions of responsibility, it really wasn't until I was appointed the wing chaplain at Aviano Air Base 12 years ago that I was appointed to a position where it became obvious to me that I couldn't get my arms around it. In other words, I had my background, the way I was raised made it very difficult for me to trust people, particularly trust people with, that had anything to do with my success. And so consequently, this was a lesson that was forced upon me, not one that I learned willingly, but we had 11 weekly services, we had 12 staff members we had six reserves, 13 contractors, 200 volunteers, a $6 million facility, and a three-quarter million dollar budget. And that was a little disorienting for me because I realized clearly that my success was entirely dependent upon others. And uh, not only that, but I was also appointed, which I think poorly so uh, as a decision-making process, the chair for the what's called the Integrated Delivery System, which is a meeting of all the helping agencies on a base that's designed to put into practice all of the uh, measures that would enhance living on an air base. So I was also charged with another 7,000 or so people. Oh, by the way, we were in a kinetic conflict with Libya, that is to say uh, there was a war going on, and uh, it was a war to the war fighters, and it was a war to Libyans for sure, and the U.S. didn't even manage a yawn until Benghazi. And I had a difficult time with that, that that success was totally in the hands of others. It's one of the most valuable life lessons that I have learned. While as a leader, you get praise for things that you do not deserve, but you also get kicked in the, in the rear for things that you do not deserve. But it was an interesting transition for me in this. My mission was to no longer provide spiritual, religious, and morale care uh, for airmen and authorized others. 
but it was to see that spiritual, religious, and morale care were provided. A subtle uh, but very distinct difference. And it's just here, more than any other, that I understand what happened in Acts 6 in Jerusalem. It is nearly unanimous that the deacons function in the early church understood from a quarrel over the distribution of food. There were two primary cultural and language differences in the church at Jerusalem. There were the Jews who spoke Greek because they were from Greek-speaking communities and had come to Jerusalem for the Passover. There were those who spoke Aramaic, uh, one might say uh, Hebrew, but it was actually Aramaic. And there was a murmuring among the Greek-speaking Jews who had become Christians because their widows were being overlooked. We need to understand this in a larger context. Uh, and, and we could, when we get to the book of Acts at some point, drill down in this. But it is not a small thing to be overlooked. And that's what was happening. So they brought the problem to the apostles who told them to choose from among themselves seven men in order to handle this problem. They said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, appropriately seen, the apostles did not say that the work was beneath them. That wasn't what they were saying at all. You have to understand that in terms of the lesson I learned at Aviano. And that is, they literally could not do all of the work that was demanded of them. It simply wasn't possible. Their role in this case was not to distribute food, but to see that food was distributed. A seemingly minor, but once again, profoundly important distinction. So who are these servants that allowed the uninhibited teaching and preaching of the apostles to go on? What does Paul want to tell Timothy about them? I mean, he already uh, said, and a great deal of thanks to Daniel for his his work in the Word last week, elders are to know and to seek the mind of the Lord regarding the flock. That is, they're to oversee, to guide, to correct if need be, along the lines not of what their personal things are, but what does Scripture say. And the Spirit of God uh, leads in that. But there is another church office and that is deacon. So read with me, if you have your text open, to 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first, 
Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So let's look at this a little closer. So dignified, uh, deacons are first to be dignified. What, what does that mean? It simply means to be honorable. It means to be honest. And immediately after that, there are three negatives that follow this positive statement. First, they're not to be double-tongued. Dilagos, like die uh, to uh, lagos word. They're not to be two-worded. That is saying one thing. And this is very specific, oh, by the way. It doesn't mean telling the same story to different people. It's not what it means. And maybe the story gets a little embellished along the way. That's not what this is talking about at all. What this is talking about is saying one thing to one person and another thing to another person in order to gain advantage. That's the key. This is deliberate deceit. Being uh, double-tongued is a sign that someone lacks integrity. And I believe integrity is the first element of being a godly leader. A synonym, you wouldn't think it, but a synonym for being double-tongued is, is two-faced. And when uh, we were learning Arabic, uh, I think my oldest daughter was with me at this time when uh, one of our teachers told this story because one of the best ways to learn a language and a culture is to learn what their cautionary tales are. And that's how you learn what they hold uh, in high value. And so the, one of the stories she told in Arabic at that time, which I probably couldn't get now, but it was about a little girl who went over to her mother's best friend's house. And as she was in the house, she began searching from room to room, looking in cupboards and looking under clothing and under pillows and wherever she could look. And finally, overcome by curiosity, the mother's best friend asked her, my child, what in the world are you searching for? And she said, why, I'm, I'm looking for your other face. My mother says you have two. So that's the notion. The notion is that's what we're talking about. In other words, for both elders and deacons and people, sometimes we, we sanctify, not sanctify, we sanctify the position too much so that no ordinary human can hold it. It's not what we're talking about. Everyone who's ever held any office in the history of this world was a human being. And Jesus Christ was the only one who did so perfectly. Second, we're told that they're not to be addicted to much wine. The word Prosecco, which is not to be confused with Prosecco, <laughs> is used by Jesus many times. 
uh, what it means is to heed to, to take heed, to devote thought and effort and concentration and the application of oneself. If you're talking about the Word of God, Prosecco is a wonderful tonic. If, however, you're talking about alcohol, it is not. Now, alcohol in this country has had a particularly harmful history in the Christian community. uh, And so its reputation is not wrongly earned. But if you travel broadly, you will soon discover that that is not so in many places in Christian communities around the world. In fact, the harm that was done in this country was so strong that some have even argued that wine is grape juice, uh, which would, of course, render this text nonsensical, given that there's nothing wrong with drinking too much grape juice. I mean, I suppose you could drink too much. You might turn purple. I don't know. But there were other words that Paul could have used if he wasn't referring to wine. Like he could have used strong drink, for example. There are other words in Greek that he could have used, but he didn't. He used wine. And while I appreciate it perfectly and agree entirely with abstinence from alcohol uh, for certain reasons, many good and valid reasons, medical, emotional, and mental, they're just not found in the Bible. Proverbs 3, 9, and 10 tells us that when we honor the Lord with our wealth and our first fruits, then your barns, this is the blessing that the Lord will give to you when you honor him with your first fruits. Your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. We're told that wine is a gift from God to us. Not only is it a blessing in the presence of God, its absence was an evidence of God's curse. In fact, Moses warned the people that if they disobeyed the Lord, many curses would overtake them. One of those, Deuteronomy 28, they would work in their vineyards but would not taste the wine. On several occasions, in fact, God as a matter of cursing a people. I mean, we see this in Hosea. We see this in Joel. We see this in Amos and Isaiah and Micah, Zephaniah, Haggai. Just run it right through where he curses what of the land? He curses their vineyards, their wine presses. So now, now please understand what that I am not saying that we should drink. I am not even saying that we should appreciate wine. I should say what I'm not saying is that there are no times of abstinence, sometimes for life. It depends on the context. I am also not saying that we should not appreciate the ruin that alcohol has caused in some families. Look at the history of it. You'll understand what I'm talking about. Look at the history of where prohibition came from, particularly in the late 1890s all all the way up in through the early teens. It was uh, not good. But what I am also saying is that those decisions are made from traditional or personal choices and convictions. 
I would certainly not be so arrogant as to argue against those. I don't. In fact, I encourage and offer some to many. But the issue here is not wine. What is the issue? The issue is addiction. It's too much wine. It's active addiction. And like many of the good things God has given to us, we've managed to ruin them. Have we not? God gives us good things and we, we tend to destroy them. Now Paul turns to money. Deacons are not to be greedy for dishonest gain. This is, quite, this is quite the word. It even hurts me to say it. It's ice crocardes. I mean, it's like even the word hurts. It's, it's, it's a word that means to fondness for sordid gain. Sordid is such a good uh, King James word. And it's the willingness to do harm to others in order to make a buck. That's essentially what it means. It's someone who is always on the lookout, how can I take advantage of this situation to get some money? In an assembly that Barbara and I used to attend, for a little while anyway, and other uh, family members continued there for a number of years, they had established a building fund because they met in the college. And each uh, week or month, I forget, the building fund was updated. This is how much money we have in our building fund. Well, after a number of years, one of the families looked at the amount of money that they had given to the building fund and the amount of money that was in the bulletin, and they realized that they had almost given as much was in the fund. So they said, this cannot be true. And so they asked around. This man was an elder by the way, not that that should matter, but it, but it does. They asked around, and sure enough, others had given substantial uh, amounts of money, and it became clear that this man had been embezzling for years. So they called a meeting to uh, challenge him, and he came to the meeting, and he takes a loaded revolver, and he sets it down on the table. Now, I don't know about you. I don't mind someone carrying a loaded revolver here in Texas if it's holstered. But when you put it on the table, that means something entirely different. And in this case, it was, you might as well pick up the pistol and shoot me in the head now. Well, of course, the the elders were far more considered than that. He went to jail. But the point ultimately here is that his conscience had been seared. And that's the thing with all of these things, right? Whether you're talking about alcohol, you're talking about being uh, dishonest, whatever it might be, the more you do it, the less your conscience says, stop doing it. In fact, Paul here in verse 9 goes on to say that deacons must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So the mystery of the faith, we won't spend any real time on at all because that's the gospel. Of more interest is what this word, a clear conscience, this phrase is. 
he uses it again. He already used it in 1.5. I mean, right at the very beginning when he starts out. So this is a problem. You know, when you're looking for hints, what was the problem at the church of Ephesus? Having a clear conscience was one of them. He used it in 1.5 when he said, The aim of our charge of love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So he's already used this. And what he's arguing is that a good conscience can and will lead you to the right path. That is, a good conscience will keep you on the righteous path so that in terms of leaders, as leaders maintain a a good conscience, that allows the people that they're responsible for to live comfortable and peaceable and prosperous lives. Shalom, uh, as it were. And he does, he gives us a hint in just a few verses in In chapter 4 and verse 2, he tells Timothy that it's possible for the conscience to be seared. So we see here there's a thematic element running through the book of 1 Timothy about the conscience. The conscience can be so blunted, it can. The conscience can be so blunted that it can no longer distinguish between right and wrong or good and evil. However, when the conscience is uh, constantly renewed by confession and repentance, we're able to accurately assess our actions, whether they're good or bad, fair or unfair. In uh, 1984, uh, Avian Airlines uh, 707 hit a mountain. And in that mountain, uh, when they hit, of course, it resulted in the loss of everyone on that flight. And the search ensued for the black box, which if you know anything about um, flying, they're orange. But regardless, it's called the black box. And they found it. What that box contains is telemetry and voice so that they can hear what's going on uh, on the flight deck in that time. What's happening? What's exactly happening? And here... Then when they listened to the tape, they discovered that just before the crash, the automatic warning system, which I have heard many times, said, pull up, pull up, pull up, pull up, in English. Inexplicably, the Spanish pilot shouted, shut up, foreigner, and he turned it off. Soon after, everyone was dead. Now this is a cautionary tale, not about what the pilot did as such, not even about what happened there. It's a cautionary tale about the way our conscience is intended to work. Our conscience is intended to tell you when to pull up. And when you hear it, you don't tell it to shut up. You listen to it. You do what it says. And it's also a story that tells us how dangerous it can be not to listen to it. Now, verse 10 tells us also that they need to be tested first. And uh, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. 
Blameless, again, here does not mean uh, perfect. There's, there's just, you know what? Yeah, I wish that wasn't an English word because it, there, it matches nothing on this earth. You know that. Nothing. It matches no thing on this earth. Perfect is exclusively the domain of glory. Anyway, we've seen this word before. It's the notion of how the silversmith, right, will watch the silver as he burns off all the uh, alloys and so forth until he's getting that molten uh, silver reflective and pure. In other words, deacons need to have lived long enough where they've gotten gut-punched a few times, where they've had some challenges, maybe even where they've been knocked down and had to get back up. In other words, they have exercised some kind of judgment in the crucible of pain. Like in the military, being recognized as a deacon, being qualified is really not an issue of, of good or bad. It's an issue of suitability. It's an issue of appropriateness. Now we come to, I love how Daniel handled it, uh, one of these things last week, where I think he said, you know, this is problematic or something like that. And then it's the way I, I handle it slightly differently. Do you know what I do when I come across a very difficult passage? I look it right in the face. And then I pass on. No. <laughs> we come to a fascinating text. Absolutely. Notoriously difficult, which are sometimes kind of fun to work with. But it's, it's one where the translation is not based on the words. It's based on your theology. It sounds easy once it's translated. You go... Of course, that's what it says. Mm, mm, but it's not quite that, that easy. So we, what we have in verse 11, Paul says that their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. There are here some difficulties that we need to look at. First, the word there is not there. It's not there. There is no there in the text. There. T-H-E-I-R is not T-H-E-R-E. Now, ordinarily, that wouldn't be a problem because in the Greek language, it's not an issue. If it's a genitive word, there is simply assumed. Genitive is the, uh, the way in Greek that you can tell uh, possession. You wouldn't have to say their bicycle. You could just put bicycle in the genitive and everyone would know, well, it's their bicycle or it's my bicycle. But in this case, uh, the word is not genitive. In fact, it is a plural feminine noun. So it's simply the word woman. That can mean wife. That's certainly possible. But usually it's means wife when it's connected to something grammatically in some way. 
So now there are two main possibilities how we can read this. The ESV presents one, which I read, which is that this is a reference to their wives. Uh, others, like the New American Standard, or the older NIV, 2011 and before, said, no, wives is not the subject, women is. Uh, I'll just, without going through a lot of uh, detail here, I'll just say that I'm with uh, Chuck Swindoll in that Paul's authoritative use of uh, Greek, Paul knew Greek. I mean, he knew Greek at a scholarly level. So when you see a lack of a possessive pronoun or the genitive case, you cannot ignore it. It cannot be ignored. He did not accidentally also use the term likewise. In verse 8, he said likewise. Likewise what? Likewise deacons. What's he saying here? I believe that what he's leaving great room for, if not saying outright, is that women can serve as deacons. In fact, certain types of women's ministries are best suited in this way. Now, of course, one doesn't need to be called a deacon or appointed a deacon in order to serve as such, but it is important that we understand that the Apostle Paul could have easily changed that. So how would this stack up against Paul's other statements on women? Deacons lead, of course. Of course they do. We all lead in some capacity. But as an office, uh, deacons led by, by doing, by serving. Here's the fact. The fact is, as it relates to our notions, because I know we come from all sorts of different places to where deacons are a thing and where deacons are like, eh. You know, I, I get that, right? But when we look at the Bible, we, we can't simply, we have to come down uh, somewhere. And as it relates to what we have today in terms of leadership by deacons, that's all man-made. You will not find in the early church deacons exercising authority over anyone. In fact, they did just exactly the opposite. They served people. So how does this stack up with women? Not a problem because women serve all the time. Men serve all the time. As Swindoll argues, the deacons in Paul's day were serving others. And they didn't exercise authority. They simply served. But then he immediately, and this requires some explanation too, let deacons each be the husband of one wife managing their children in their own households well we see that deacons are be the husbands of uh, husband of one wife daniel mentioned this too where the best translation of that is a one woman kind of man well i mean why would he say that here with the elders doesn't that argue against your last point 
I think that it certainly could, but, but listen, throughout history, with few notable exceptions, being a one-man kind of woman has never been an issue. Did you hear me? Did, did, you, did you see the flip? The issue is being a one-woman kind of man. He, if he's talking to women at this point, he doesn't need to tell them, you need to be a one-man kind of woman. You already are. At least statistically, that's true. And always has been. Men have a greater tendency to stray. It's not that women don't, but it's better than two to one. You know, within the last ten days, and I know I'm going a couple of minutes over, do you know, just a little aside, I'll take another ten seconds for this, most of sermon preparation is weeding out. It, it, that's, that's what it is. So we're going to be just a tiny bit long because my preparation this week was lacking. So within the last 10 days, a sizable conservative faith group released a 200-page document detailing over 700 ministers over the past 20 years who have taken sexual advantage over members of the flock that they cared for. After reading the first three pages, I put it aside. I was in disbelief for many reasons, not the least of which is this. If 700 ministers, by the way, this was hidden until, what, 10 days ago? If there's that many who have done those, how many more are just mean-spirited? How many more have spiritually abused, rendered invisible, caused unnecessary division and pain. I struggle when I think about it. It also breaks my heart because I know that a thousand pastors leave the ministry every month in this country. A thousand depart the ministry every month. The pressures are simply too great and the rewards are simply too small. But let me say this. That is not the case here. That is not the case in any well-shepherded group with elders. Why? Because shepherds shepherd. I'm not the one, you see. I'm one of many I preach, I teach, I counsel, but the weight of the church is not on my back. The, the weight is manageable because in the wisdom of God, he has told us how to manage his people. And that is always with the plurality of leadership. And those poor pastors in the, who are leaving the ministry, I will guarantee you, it is because they believe that they have to carry a weight which does not actually belong to them. They have fallen in regards to what Paul is telling Timothy not to fall for. I'm not saying that in the bad way. I'm just saying that Paul is saying it's not healthy for a church to have a single pastor or even multiple pastors if those pastors believe that they are in any way 
higher or more special than the elders. They are not. That's where trouble comes in. Elders are not above the people. Elders are from among the people, not to control them, but to set aside earnest time to see to what it takes to protect and guide the flock so that the flock can have shalom. And deacons provide direct support for that endeavor. Finally, in verse 13, it says, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Servanthood, you almost have to go to certain other cultures around the world in order to experience this directly. Because in America, we're like, yeah, it's okay. I mean, you know, I got it. It's okay. Servant. We even do servant leadership. Wow, that makes us feel real special when we can say we're servant and leader at the same time. And we're covering the whole, the whole wide thing. But you've got to understand, in Greek culture, being a servant was not a good thing. It was looked down on, subhuman kind of down on. To be a servant was to be property. To the ancient Roman or Greek, it was exceedingly unappealing. Yet for the the behavior of the believer to serve is one of the highest things we can do in our calling from Jesus Christ. Jesus was the one singular point in history person who turned the idea inverted servanthood uh, upside down. If you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, what do you have to be? The leader of all? The most intelligent, the smartest, the most spiritual, the most wonderful, the most dedicated, the most humanitarian, the most... No. You have to be a servant of all. Deacon, what a noble title. What a honorable calling. Not all can, title or not, serve in this way because it is preeminently Christ-like to serve. And so may we, each one of us, regardless of where we find ourselves, aspire to a calling of service to Jesus Christ. Father, we are deeply grateful for the love that you have toward us. It is impossible for us to explain, much less understand, uh, but we accept, we experience. And Lord, to the degree that we are able, we look into your word as we're taught not to twist it one way or another but to say what you say we thank you we praise you through Christ our Lord amen